to slaves and masters. He dealt with the topic of submission generally and broadly, and Aaron and I were talking about it this week, and we decided now we should go back and look at each of those three contexts very specifically and particularly. So this was part of the plan. And I should tell you that as I was working on this this week, I was vaguely aware that it was Mother's Day, and I thought, ah, it'll be fine. And then you all showed up with your mothers. And probably at about 11 o'clock, I won't have a job. But this is the way it fell on the calendar, so this is what we're going to do. Little Christians, young theologians, how much does Jesus love us? Come up with an amount. How much does Jesus love us? This is the good news given through the Apostle Paul. It's mysterious that the gospel soaks through these verses. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Grace for our hearts and grace through our bodies is what we ask from you, Jesus, who are pure of heart and incarnate in righteousness. Do this by the power of your Spirit, under the will and the word of the Father, and for it we will give you thanks. We ask it, certain. You will give to us good gifts because you love us perfectly. We ask it in your name of love. Amen. Would you be seated? Three sections on submission. End of chapter 5 into the beginning sections of chapter 6. Three sections on the topic. Because submission throws us into the arms of grace. Submission takes our hearts out of our own hands and puts them in the hands of grace. Ready or not, because we'd never be ready and we all need a good shove. An old friend of mine loves to tell the story of a junior high dance. 
All the boys were doing what boys do at these things, standing around the perimeter of the gym. The lights were off. The music was way too loud. We were all self-conscious and pubescent and pimply. And in the middle of it all, this one brave little girl approached a group of us boys and asked my friend to dance. And while he was fumbling for an answer, I spoke up for him. He'd love to dance, and I shoved him into her arms. And that's what submission does. It pushes us into the arms of grace because we'd never give ourselves up to it otherwise. In fact, without submission, we would try to wrestle grace into our grasp, into our clutches. And we always try to make of grace something it's not. We always, always mess it up. You see it again and again in the lives of the disciples and the crowds following Jesus throughout the Gospels. No, 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 no. We don't want a Savior born in weakness. We want a Savior who storms the capital city with power and might. We want a Savior in a chariot, not a manger. Oh, you'll have to submit. This is grace. No, we we don't want a Savior who's judged for our hearts. We want a Savior who judges with a warped heart like ours. No, I'm sorry, you'll have to submit. This is what grace looks like. We don't want a Savior who can walk out of a locked tomb. Because that means He can walk uninvited into our locked hearts, our locked rooms. We want a Savior who is not bigger than our locks. Oh, then you don't want a Savior at all. And if you don't submit to this, then you lock yourselves out of grace. See? Without submission, you would never fall into the arms of grace at all. You would never be swept away in the dance of God's love for sinners. And actually... What you believe about submission is what you believe about the gospel. Do I believe that Jesus is so good and so gracious, I can put myself in His hands, confident that no matter what He gives me, I'll be loved? If He's that good and loving, then submission isn't a threat. It's grace throwing its arms around me, pulling me closer, not turning me loose. So here in the end of chapter 5, we have the terrifying notion and subject of submission in the context of marriage. That's a dangerous topic. You know what submission in marriage gets us? Angry, domineering, authoritarian husbands. The great Santini wearing a wedding band dominated wives with broken hearts and broken spirits and a bunch of single people who watch it all and they see marriage as tying the noose, not tying the knot. Submission feels like a command by a cold-hearted, hard-fisted, chauvinistic, misogynistic God who thumbs his nose at a culture that finds the concept medieval, if not downright tribal and primitive. 
Ah, but all of life is theology, whether we know it or not, whether we're paying attention to it or not. God proclaims His glory in all things, and this is no exception. And that's why Paul says at the end of the passage, you thought I was talking about husbands and wives, but really I'm talking about Jesus the groom and the church His bride. What is this wonderful, elusive, baffling, infuriating thing we call marriage? Like everything else, it's a sermon of grace. But like all sermons, it's hard to hear. Like all sermons, it's hard to grasp. It's not easy. You don't rush into it. You don't grab hold of it immediately. But it is a picture of grace. And look, I want to get even more personal and uncomfortable with it because I think that's exactly what Paul intends and I think it's necessary to make Paul's point. I've never liked sermons on Ephesians 5 because they always come off like the theory of marriage. They're way too polite. They're not earthy enough. They're too delicate. They're shy and blushing. They're not bold enough. And I don't think Paul will allow it from this passage. Listen to the things he says. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he writes. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, pleases it. You hear what he's saying? You didn't marry an idea. You married a body. Love your wife as a body. Wives, love your husbands as a body. And then down in verse 31, Paul moves from the metaphysical to the very physical. He brings the spiritual down into the world of the fleshy. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. But particularly his mother. Her nurture and tenderness and closeness run out. They're not enough. There's, there's something more. And a man will hold fast to his wife. He'll cling to her. Latch onto her, never let go, and the two shall become one flesh. You understand the concept of one flesh? Of course you don't. You've spiritualized it away. You want to know what one flesh means? Here's what it means you're supposed to be so close as husband and wife that you're nearly indistinguishable. One flesh joined together all over each other so that your kids squirm and have to leave the room, and your dispassionate, embarrassed friends are always telling you to go rent one. (laughs) That's what it means to be one flesh. And I love the way C.S. Lewis writes of his marriage to Joy Davidman. It's a marriage that took place late in life, dead in the heart of middle age, It was that late in their years, and on top of that, Joy Davidman was being treated for cancer. They had plenty of excuse to have a disappointing marriage, a marriage to be endured more than enjoyed. But here's what Lewis writes of his marriage. In those few years, Joy and I feasted on love. You use that verb for your marriage? 
Joy and I feasted on love. Every mode of it, solemn and merry, romantic and realistic, sometimes as dramatic as a thunderstorm, sometimes as comfortable and unemphatic as putting on your soft slippers. Not a fold in our hearts or our bodies remained unsatisfied. When we come to this passage, I think we tell ourselves a myth. That Jesus wants husbands and wives to be spiritually intimate and physically disinterested. Physically above it all. That's, that's what it would mean to be godly and holy. And God gives us this physical intimacy because at times we just can't help ourselves. So he gives it as a concession. But heaven forbid he should actually want something for us. And heaven forbid he should actually be doing something with us and in us by this thing. And Paul's actually demolishing the myth. And he's calling husbands and wives to submit to each other in their bodies. To give themselves in their bodies because the gospel is in this thing. And actually... What you believe about sex is what you believe about the gospel. And if you were asleep, you're not now. (laughs) Now look, I hate the way the church talks about sexuality. We try to be cute at points. We try to be crass to show how familiar we are with it. Sometimes we turn it into a carnival sideshow. And I'm not out to embarrass you. I'm just out to tell you the truth. And I'll probably get it wrong. And I'll have to repent for it. But what we believe about sex is what we believe about the gospel. And if you're single and you haven't been given this thing, you might feel like you have to take it for yourself. You might feel like you have to steal it. And if that's the case, the belief behind that action is that Jesus isn't gracious to give his love to you. It was the mistake of the man and the woman in the garden. God isn't good to us. We'll have to be good to ourselves. And we'll take what we can get. Maybe... You aren't stealing it for yourself. You've been given this thing in marriage, but you neglect it. You refuse it. You don't want it. You don't need it. Here's a good gift, and you've said it's not good. And the root of that is still in the heart. It's probably, probably the case that you don't enjoy Jesus. Don't mishear that. You, you love Him, but if I were to instruct you, go delight yourself in Him. Go fill up your joy in Him. You wouldn't know what to do with that. You wouldn't know where to begin. Or worse, it might be the case that you don't believe Jesus could ever enjoy you. He loves you, but to be delighted in you? To be head over heels for you? Can't be close enough to you? You don't have categories for that. That doesn't fit your theology. In your theology, Jesus saves us. He just doesn't want us. Or maybe you're single or married. 
and you've disconnected this thing from the gospel, you love it too much. It's gotten away from you. You've detached it from the God who uses it mysteriously. And you've severed it from a spouse with whom you're to rejoice in it or marvel in it. And it's taken on a life of its own. And it rules your heart and it rules your mind and maybe even your body. It's become a God. And you worship something that was meant to be used in worship. You serve something that's designed to serve you. And as all this has happened, the love of Jesus has gotten smaller as the cruelty of this thing has gotten bigger. It's it's hard to keep our hearts and bodies together in the gospel. And here's the proof of it. Rock and roll, rock music has its roots in the church. Rock music comes from sacred music. It started in the rollicking, romping gospel choruses and songs, this sort of ecstatic proclamation of God's salvation that the Pentecostal tradition used in the earlier parts of the last century. And in the middle of that movement, there were some musicians who grew up in that tradition. Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Elvis Presley. And they took this sort of musical surrender... And they they sang about salvation. They used all the language of salvation. But this time, salvation didn't come from the heart of God and the works of God. This time, salvation is found in the arms of a woman. And a musical movement and genre is born. Rock music didn't create the air. It just set it to guitars and put a beat behind it and lyrics to it. This, this thing won't save your soul, but it can preach salvation to your soul. And that's why God has given it to you. All the misinterpretations we have of the thing. For wives, not only wives, or always wives, but often wives. For wives, it's a chore. It's like a load of laundry. For husbands, not only husbands or always husbands, but often husbands, it's more fantasy than reality, more drive and impulse than romance and delight, more animal than image of God. It's a distraction rather than a deepening. But what it's really intended for is to be a sermon of grace preached in touch and taste and nerve endings and goosebumps and glands. And mystery. It's a mystery because this sermon of grace is more incarnate than spoken. And maybe that's good. It's not to be thought of so much, ruminated over so much, as to be felt and lost in. And here's the sermon. Jesus preaches through it. Jesus gives all of himself to have all of you. He holds nothing back in loving you. He loves you with all that He is and all that He has. With all of His flesh, He loves you in your flesh. Think of it, part of the Godhead willingly stuffed itself into an infant body, in a womb with an umbilical cord. 
Jesus coming in his body is too much for us to think about, so we, we sort of turn away and we flinch, and we even write the reality out of the Christmas carols. But when the baby was born, Mary was sweaty and panting and bloody, and she kissed the child through the mess of it. And that's the gospel, the Savior loving us in our low meanness, the parts of us no one wants to see. That same person of the Godhead hanged himself on a cross under a curse not his own, a curse that ripped his lover out of his arms, so with nails and beams under black skies with eternal judgment poured out on his head, he was taking his lover back. And that same person of the Godhead walked away from his throne to be laid out in a tomb so that he could carry you away from the tomb and seat you with him on his throne. He didn't cross the floor of a dark gymnasium to ask for the hand of his love. He trudged through death. He stomped through the deep valley to sweep his lover into his arms and carry her off. And is there anything that Jesus withholds when he touches us with his purifying touch in baptism, when he takes us in uncleanness to make us clean? Is there anything he is not giving to us when he chases away our soul emptiness with bread and wine? Is there any part of himself he's hiding from us when he opens to us his heart from his word? When we confess our sins and he assures us of his forgiveness and pardon? Is there any part of his love that he's keeping back from us as he touches the most raw and exposed and wounded pieces of us with tenderness and sweetness? The most painfully, fearfully naked parts of us being pressed into himself. And that same redemption is supposed to fill up our marriages and it's supposed to run through our bodies. The gospel in marriage is we give all of self to have all of another. And that's what he's preaching to us when he gives husbands and wives to submit to each other in this way. Hold nothing back in loving each other. That's what Paul's saying. Husbands, love your wives. And this is what it looks like. It looks like sacrifice. The language of sacrifice says, there is nothing I wouldn't do for you. Ask me anything. I dare you. Ask me anything. Anything for you. At any cost. It's not duty And it's not commitment. Duty and commitment are more of the self feeling good about itself. This is deeper. This is consuming love. Because from his own fullness, Jesus has loved me this way. I want to love you this way. And wives, respect your husbands. You know what respect means? It means regard, esteem. An affectionate, deeply passionate, high view wrapped up with expectation and anticipation. Paul is saying, wives, treasure your husbands. Don't nag them. You're not their mama. You are their lover. Don't take your husband for granted. Respect here means, if anyone can get to my heart, you can. And I expect you to run away with it again and again 
and again. And I'm leaving the way open for you to run away with my heart again and again and again. When you're trying and even when you're not. Because from his own fullness, this is how Jesus has loved me. And I'm going to love you in the same way. And you can begin to sense the power, the effect that all of this has. In, in our relationships as husbands and wives, we start to look more and more the way Jesus loves his church and the church returns his love. Living like this, our relationships look like verses 26 and 27. They're sanctifying, they're washing, they're cleansing, fighting to present our spouses to ourselves, fighting to present our spouses to ourselves, radiantly beautiful, breathtakingly beautiful for endless, uninterrupted, increasing enjoyment. All all my faults, all my failures, all my shame, all my guilt, kissed away, embraced away, pressed away, all the unholiness and the idolatry that I invite in is driven away. It's forgiving and healing and renewing. The old is dying. Something new is coming to life because I'm being loved to aliveness. Yeah, if husbands and wives live together like that, it's probably going to end with physical intimacy. A lot. Husband and wife wanting to get as close in their bodies as they can to match what's happening in their hearts. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's giving back to us the end of Genesis chapter 2. The man and the woman were naked and unafraid. Naked spiritually, naked emotionally. Wants to finish by being naked physically. Fearing nothing. Resenting nothing. What you believe about how husbands and wives are to give themselves to each other is what you believe about how Jesus gives himself to you. Or alternately, how he keeps himself from you. All all that's going on in these verses, in this passage, it is not about harmony in the home. It's about the peace of the gospel shouted into our hearts and sweeping through our bodies and then filling up our homes unmistakably, inarguably. And this could be part of the reason the gospel is so deficient in our homes. Husbands and wives, you aren't preaching to each other. You have stifled. And held back the sermon that Jesus has given you to proclaim freely and boldly. And cold beds are empty pulpits. And you can't help but feel it and believe it after a while. So how do husbands and wives grow in these things? I love the fact that Paul hasn't given to us a manual. He hasn't written for us a how-to. He doesn't unravel these ancient Eastern mysteries of sensuality. It's not the Kama Sutra in the New Testament version. Paul opens the mysteries of our bodies by opening the mysteries of our hearts. How do husbands and wives grow in these things? You enjoy the gospel. That's how. 
Be surprised at all the ways Jesus loves you. Be shocked. Be overcome at all the ways Jesus delights in you and gives himself to you. He holds nothing back and wants all of you. I would bet that whatever you believe properly in ways that are healthy, whatever you believe about Jesus, you haven't even begun to drill down deep enough to know how completely Jesus loves you. But once you begin to discover it, it will make you want to proclaim that same good news in every way that Jesus has ordained for you. His love, which withholds nothing, will make you want to withhold nothing. And what if I'm single? Ah, he's still giving grace for your body, but he's giving it differently. And he's teaching you the mystery. For you, the mystery exists here. That grace comes from Jesus, not from a biological process. There is a Lord at work behind grace, not a neurochemical response. And the first thing you have to learn, as eager as you may be to know grace like this with a spouse, you have to learn to submit with your body. That Jesus is the Lord of your body. That's the lesson you have to learn. And it's His truth that helps you live happily and fulfilled in your body. His grace sustains you. And that way, when He finally gives you a spouse, gives you to a spouse, what you will proclaim with and through your body is the all-giving love of Jesus and not some other brokenness. Grace is submission for you too if you're single. It's just taking a different shape right now. And what if I've been single longer than I had hoped? What if it looks like this is where I'm going to stay? Well, there's still grace in it. Jesus is still giving all of himself for you. He delights himself for you. But, but why won't he give me grace in the way you've been talking about it, in the way that Paul has written of it here? I don't know. That's part of the mystery also. But I can tell you this, none of us would be satisfied with sexual touch alone. We need the deeper touch of the gospel. I can live without the first, and I don't want to live without the second. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is gracious. Even in the mysterious way, he's at work in your life And that should pull our hearts out of self-pity and self-loathing and bitterness and resentment toward God. And if you're a skeptic, this passage actually asks more of you than anyone else. The world has a version of sex that's very different from the one that the church holds to. And the church often likes to say it's a false version. I actually don't believe that. I believe there's still beauty in the world's version. It's just a muted beauty. There's still truth in it, but it's, it's half the truth. And that's the challenge for you. To believe that sex isn't just for the body, but it's for the heart and the soul. And it says something of God's specific and saving love given to us through the body of Jesus. But for all of us, 
sexual sin and brokenness. And yes, we actually use the antiquated term sin. It's sin because we take God's gift and instead of using it to draw near to Him, we use it as leverage to move farther away from Him. It's sin because we use His gift to escape needing Him. For all of our sin... The question is, can I stop worshiping myself with and through this thing? And can I start to see the way it holds out to us the love of Jesus? And can I submit in belief and body and not want to participate in broken forms that leave my heart parched and starving and empty and confused and wondering why? If so, then it's, it's no longer a curse. It's grace. Two Fridays ago, we had the royal wedding on in our house, getting ready for work, getting ready for school. We kept going into the den and looking in on the ceremony. I was in the kitchen, and my girls called, Dad, Dad, it's time for the kiss. Come quick. They're going to kiss. So I went in to watch. William and Kate stood on the balcony of Buckingham Palace with the rest of the royal family. All their cheering subjects were below, and we were gathered around the television in our den. And William leaned in, and we leaned closer. That was it. Huge disappointment. I think they timed it at two-tenths of a second. I wished I'd been there. I'd have gone out on the balcony and grabbed William and said, Have you seen the girl that you just married? We need to do this again. This time you need to do it with feeling. Do it like it means something. Do it like you can't help yourself. And Kate, you're no better. You're supposed to put your hand on the back of his head, the back of his neck, pull him into you, pull him nearly down on top of you. That's the way it's done. And as the commentators stammered to try to make sense of what had just happened, I broke the silence in our family room. And I said, Jenny, who kisses better, me or the prince? (laughs) I already knew the answer. And just for the record, I am way better. Because I have a reason to be. And so do you. You have a reason to be. Do you believe this passage? Have you begun to believe this passage? You're way better than William or Kate. There's something behind it for you. There is more than royal pomp and media buildup and the entire world 
tuning in. There's the love of Jesus that holds nothing back in loving you. And in submission to his gracious heart, it graciously has to come out like a sermon wrapped in skin. Whether you're married or single or soon to be married or you have no prospects in sight, whether you've never believed these things like this or you still don't quite believe them, I hope you find the epic romance of the gospel. And it loves you alive. And I hope the closeness and the kiss of the Savior never cease to take your breath away. Jesus is gracious, you can submit. And what you believe about submission is what you believe about his gospel. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that you would fill our hearts with the truth of the depth of your love. We've not begun to discover it. And no wonder we're so clumsy and faltering in the ways we give ourselves to love a spouse or in the ways that we restrain ourselves waiting until you're gracious enough to give us one to preach to like this or in the ways we're we're challenged to believe that if you don't give us a spouse you still give all of yourself to us and have withheld nothing from us It's all mystery. But what's not mysterious is that you love us, sparing nothing. And in this, what is old and worn out and broken and corrupt and polluted in us will die. And what is glorious and beautiful and gives praise to God will sprout and take life and grow in us. Give marriage and singleness that preach the grace of Jesus. And for it, we'll give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.